Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vine Pairs Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. I've been thinking a lot about my relationship with the Manhattan, and the best analogy that I can come up with is the way that some people might view jazz. I fully appreciate its merits, but I might not go as far as to call myself a fan. Now, I know that in the field of cocktail enthusiasts, I'm definitely in the minority there. And before you tarnish me as some kind of cocktail philistine, I should say that that much was true until I spoke with Abigail Hulo. And now I've changed my mind. Over 45 minutes, Abigail, who's the director of Bartender Circle, not only eloquently distills decades of making this cocktail, she also lays out a very convincing argument for why the Manhattan should be America's national cocktail. After hearing her case, you know how I now feel. But will you also be convinced? There's only one way to find out. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. The right bourbon can elevate your next cocktail into an experience worth savoring. So look for a brand that doesn't overlook the details and sets the standard for bourbon. That's Knob Creek. It's truly the real deal. An authentic, classic line of American whiskeys with proofs ranging from 100 to 120. Knob Creek is aged longer to produce a full flavor experience as rich and deep as its history. With every drop, you notice the attention to detail Knob Creek puts into its bourbon. So strive for a little more substance, because when you choose to go deeper, you'll find so much more to appreciate. I'm gonna kick things off then. Abigail Gulo, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, really looking forward to chatting about the Manhattan with you. I am so excited to be here. You, I don't think you could have picked someone with more experience. You know, my grandfather taught me how to make a Manhattan when I was seven years old. So I literally have over 40 years of experience making Manhattans. Wow. <laughs> That's incredible. And of course, you you personally also hail from the or from New York originally. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. the The Isle of Manhattan is where I spent most of my life. So, uh, and I have a lot of family history there. Uh, my grandparents were both Hell's Kitchen kids who got married at St. Michael's Church on Thirty Fourth Street. Wow, still there. <laughs> so definitely speaking with the perfect person for this drink today. Um, <laughs> You mentioned there, you know, this the Manhattan. We're, we're talking an iconic cocktail here, named after probably one of the most iconic and storied islands in the world. Um, dates back to the 1800s, a ton of history. I don't think, you know, I think we would need a whole episode to devoted to just exploring all of that. So can we start by, can you start by telling us what you believe to be some of the most important historical facets of this cocktail? Well. This cocktail was created um, really in a t period of time in history when um, Manhattan was becoming one of the most powerful plots of land um, in, in the world, really. You could kind of chart the shift of power in, um, in the United States uh, from the moment they finished the Erie Canal. And 
all of um, the world um, started entering the United States through a different way. And all of the United States, the breadbasket, everything started going up the Mississippi through the Great Lakes and um, through New York and ending in um, New York City for export. So it was a real shift in power from New Orleans, which was the kind of seat of power in the United States because of its location at the mouth of the Mississippi, to New York City. At the same time, you had this massive wave of immigration coming from Europe and landing in New York City. And the city was growing in an unprecedented rate. And it was also, in true American fashion, becoming a kind of melting pot or gumbo of different um, cultures and styles. And you had this unique American creation, the cocktail, suddenly taking off uh, with a new generation of bartenders, um, the first kind of golden age of bartending, as you, if you were, mm-hmm. where we had celebrity bartenders, where we had um, cocktails that had started to have names and cocktails that started to um, take a different look and different shape. So the cocktail in the 1800s would look like what an old fashioned looks like today. It was just bitter sugar, spirit and water. Mm-hmm. Um, all of a sudden you see the sugar, which was so plentiful and easy to get in New Orleans, maybe a little harder to get in uh, New York, being replaced with new sweet liqueurs and vermouths and fortified wines that were coming over with this new wave of immigration. So I really see the Manhattan as that bridge from one generation of cocktail makers to a whole nother that has lasted pretty much all the way until the 21st century. Uh, It's an amazing, it's an amazing cocktail to me. Um, It it still has bitters in it. (laughs) It's still to this day, got to have bitters in it. That's a really important element. So it's still by the true definition of the word, a cocktail. Mm -hmm. And uh, it uses an American spirit, a really kind of uniquely defined American spirit. And then it also uses this ingredient that was brought over by, uh, by the other side of my ancestry, my, uh, my Italian relatives. That's fantastic. And a couple of things there. I mean, I love how you place that as being this kind of, um, kind of like a a, a post, a, a stick in terms of um, you know, defining American history and also cocktail history. One of the other things that you mentioned there that I really like is that you say uh, a uniquely American spirit, and I would say that that's one of the things that perhaps endures to this day is whether this is a rye or bourbon cocktail. Um, love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I think, um, you know, we didn't have definitions of, of whiskey, of what um, whiskey was um, at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they the original recipes, those early recipes in the b- books call for American whiskey. Uh, that American whiskey, if you were drinking it anywhere in the Mid-Atlantic region, was most definitely rye. Um, they were very mm-hmm. famous for the uh, the Mangahila strain of rye. The Maryland had their own form of rye, Pennsylvania rye. Of course, New York rye was huge. Um, so if you were on the coast, you were definitely drinking rye whiskey. It's what George Washington made. It's what um, Thomas Jefferson made. Uh, it's what there was a lot of excess grain. A lot of farmers were using rye. Uh, corn was deeper on the frontier land, you know, in the Kentucky region. So, mm-hmm. uh, so was bourbon used? Probably, if they had bourbon, but they more than likely had rye. 
it was really prohibition that kind of killed off um, the production of rye. And Mm -hmm. uh, then bourbon began its resurgence. So if you have a Manhattan after prohibition, yeah, it, it might be it might be made with bourbon. Honestly, the way I feel about it is personally, I, I like the spiciness of the rye. I've always mm-hmm. been a rye girl. I kind of got into this industry because I was so obsessed with making a real, true and authentic Manhattan. Uh, and and then, of course, I discovered the Sazerac, another great rye cocktail that Absolutely. I would like travel to New Orleans to buy bottles of rye because I couldn't get a good selection of rye in New York, <laughs> if you mm-hmm. can imagine that. <laughs> So I, yeah, I love that as well. How you how you kind of paint it as some things we have to remember when we're when we're in search of historical accuracy is how much things have changed, right? When you talk about definitions and yeah. that maybe rye and rye and bourbon didn't exist as they were today, right? No one's talking about fifty one percent back no. then. So <laughs> no. It, it, no. It, we're really talking <laughs> a different era and time and different ingredients. Absolutely, uh, I think rye whiskey uh, was definitely the drink of choice. And and when I started in the early 21st century, when we were all cocktail nerds in New York City, kind of rediscovering the classics, mm-hmm. rye whiskey was, was, became very, very important. And that led to like this whole boom. But rye whiskey, I mean, p- would have gone extinct. American rye whiskey mm-hmm. was on the list of um, extinct ingredients mm-hmm. uh, and would have gone extinct in the 1980s if it wasn't for the good people of New Orleans drinking their Sazeracs. Jimmy Russell from Wild Turkey told me that himself. He's like, no, there's no way. There wouldn't even yeah. be American rye whiskey if it wasn't for New Orleans who continued, who refused to say, no, the Sazerac is not a bourbon cocktail. It is a rye cocktail and we refuse to replace it. So I really admire the people of New Orleans and thank them for sharing rye because the people of New York did not do that. They're like, yeah, sure. Manhattan bourbon, whatever. Fine. (laughs) Yeah. We wouldn't be able to have this conversation today. No, No, we would not. Definitely need to tip our hats to the the folks of New Orleans. Um, There's another part of this cocktail that I am very interested in, um, which is it's ties to the martini. Um, I guess you could say the martini is a descendant of the Manhattan, uh, very similar kind of formulas. And I'd love to hear your take on that. But one thing that strikes me is that we, we have this very sort of strict ratio that's almost always adhered to when it comes to the Manhattan, but the martini itself has almost become this category of cocktails, or it's a very personalized drink where you have all these different ratios. Why, why do you think that that one has remained true for the Manhattan, but it hasn't for the martini. It's very interesting. I don't know if it's a a whole bunch of uh, social, um, you know, um, sources that kind of swirled around the martini uh, from James Bond to the fact that gin fell out of favor for vodka and it became a very Mm -hmm. easy replacement. Um, I, because it's to me, um, uh, a classic martini is still very, uh, it looks pretty much identical to a classic Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I see them in the same, um, they take up the same space in my brain. I do appreciate that people have all these different variations of the martini. I think maybe it's because of the, the versatility of, and the, the wide differences that you find in different gins and different vermouths mm-hmm. um, that can lead to everyone having, because taste is very subjective and everyone has their own personal taste. And I'm, okay with whatever you know of course however people want to drink it i mean my grandfather the way he taught me to make a manhattan does not look anything like the way i make a manhattan now but that's the way he liked it and i love and respect him for it that Mm -hmm. that's his manhattan uh so i respect anyone's view of the martini that way too i just think the 
the combination of dry vermouth and gin and orange bitters in in either a twist or an olive can so dramatically change the drink that of course you're going to start to have preferences and like it a certain way and then maybe push it a little farther. Oh, I like it really, I really like it clear and cold. So Mm -hmm. maybe I need a little less vermouth than that. Like I could totally see how that would um, start to happen. I also just think that um, the drink remained um, popular uh, and, and while vermouth did not, and so if your quality of the, your vermouth goes down, of course, you're just going to rather have cold gin in a glass than um, cold right. gin mixed with poor quality, um, you know, spoiled vermouth. So, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, whereas I think, I don't know, I feel like sweet vermouth and, and I think just Manhattan never really had that huge, you know, um, popularity that the martini mm-hmm. did. But it's interesting as well that those are two drinks that, did not, to to a large extent, need kind of resuscitating by the cocktail renaissance, right? Like they they endured, they remained in people's minds, but probably the quality, like you said, was not very good. People were not chilling their vermouth. You'd find it on the back bar, dusty, uh, or these yeah. are the, the kind of tropes, right? That's what people say about vermouth. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, before we, before we dial into the ingredients, just how much do you think in the last, say, 20 years, 30 years, the average quality of a Manhattan that you will find at a bar has improved or changed? I, you know what, I, I'd like to say it improved dramatically. Mm-hmm. But I think, I mean, that's one of my things that I love about the Manhattan is that it's kind of been steady eddy. You mm-hmm. know, it's, it has maintained its true roots throughout uh, over a hundred years of people mixing it. Like I, I'm, you know, I, I, fondly remember you know going to a family restaurant with my grandfather and being old enough to saddle up next to him at the bar and order that manhattan on the rocks with extra cherries mm-hmm. <laughs> before dinner <laughs> because that's as because i was 21 and i was like oh i want extra cherries in my drink <laughs> incredible and actually before we do move on can you tell us your grandfather's recipe i feel like it would be a shame not to hear that yeah so he liked it he liked it with bourbon he liked mm-hmm. it sweet. He had a sweet tooth and he wasn't a big drinker. So it was a real treat for him to have a drink. So he would like to savor it. So he actually enjoyed his Manhattan on the rocks, uh, 50-50 sweet vermouth and um, bourbon with mm-hmm. um, extra bitters and extra cherries. Wow. <laughs> that actually, that sounds very refreshing. It sounds bold, but it sounds very refreshing as well. You know, I, I, I don't hate, I mean, it's not my favorite, but you know, for nostalgic reasons, sometimes I get a craving for it just like that. And it's really easy to make it home. <laughs> <laughs> and also that taps into just drinks being so much more than just what they taste like, right? It's their yeah. backstory. It's what it means to you personally. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, you know, I'm so so I've become such a um, uh, a love uh, lover of fortified wine too. That having good sweet vermouth, of course, the temptation there. I mean, just like many bartenders love to do fifty fifty martinis, mm-hmm. I think you know fifty fifty Manhattans are 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 um, are, are delicious. <laughs> you wow. know, they have their moment. You know, and then I can have the more of them too, which of course is very important. That's always very helpful. Mm-hmm. So then, tell us about. Tell us about your preference when it comes to this cocktail. And clearly, this is a drink that you have studied and enjoyed over over many years. So um, where do you land first in terms of uh, ratio of different ingredients? Uh, I I do like the kind of preferred two to one um, mm-hmm. 
two ounces of spirit and one ounce of vermouth. I do like a little extra dash of bitters because I love bitters. Um, I kind of like my Manhattans perfect. Mm-hmm. I like half sweet vermouth, half dry vermouth, and I enjoy it with a twist and a cherry if I can nice. be so bold. Yeah, absolutely. That is a, that is allowed. Confirming here, that is allowed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and. Oh, and of spirit. course, I like it with rye. <laughs> rye with whiskey. rye, yes. Yeah. So you mentioned rye. Um, of course, rye is not, you know, rye is very, very different. There, there are different mash bills now. You know, these are things that we dial into and we look into now in, in, in a way that we probably didn't do before. So when it, when it comes to that, when it comes to are you looking for something like more like a Kentucky style that's 51% rye or sort of higher? What about proof? Um do you even dial into things like do you care about whether these are bottles that are being chill filtered or not? What's your what's your ideal um, pour? Uh, I like I like my rye. Uh, I like my whiskey in general a little bit. <laughs> like I like my men a little bit on the younger <laughs> side. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, but not so young. Actually, you know, like under under six years. Actually, mm-hmm. um, actually, to be honest, I love little boys and you know sweet boys. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Sorry, I used to be a teacher. <laughs> that's that's where that's coming from. <laughs> so I do I do love um, to really still be able to taste a lot of the grain. Um, mm-hmm. So I do like those kind of spicy high rye um, straight ryes uh, are really good. My personal favorite um, is what's coming out of the Willet Distillery in Bardstown. I tend Ooh. to when I do blind tastings, I tend to choose whiskey from that region. So I know a lot of people are like, whiskey doesn't have a terroir. I'm like, I know, it's impossible. But (laughs) however, I tend to like the style of -hmm. whiskey that tends to come from the Bardstown region of Kentucky. The the ones I pick out in blind tastings tend to come from there. I'm also, you know, being a New Yorker, a huge fan of this new empire rye that we have now. We have Mm. a new category of rye. Um, I do have an old bottle of Pikesville. I went to college in... um, in uh, the uh, Maryland, Virginia area, so I love that Maryland style rye too. So yeah, no, I, I, you can't, I can't choose one. I love rye, <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder whether for this cocktail specifically, because you know we are talking about pairing with a sweet vermouth um, or or sweet and dry, whether that's your preference, but with the boldness of sweet vermouth, I wonder whether you describing, you know, these younger styles of rye where some of the grain comes through perhaps more than the oak and the maturation. I wonder whether that plays into it. Just that, that idea that that spice and rawness mixes so well with the the richness of a sweet vermouth. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think that's, it's a magical combination and I, and I really, really love it. And we have so many beautiful fortified wines coming from 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 all over Italy but also I love Spanish vermouths and Corsican Mm -hmm. and there's just you have such a beautiful wealth of choices now when you Mm -hmm. think back to you know even 15 years ago trying to find something other than Martini and Rossi was such a challenge and now look at all the beautiful choices we have not to mention you know making modifications now this isn't like they aren't manhattans anymore but i love all the variations of manhattans like martinis again have become this whole thing and you could put slap teeny on the end of anything but it doesn't look anything like a uh like a um 
martini. What I love about Manhattans is oh, there's all these beautiful Manhattan variations that are just playing off of the theme. And they're mm-hmm. called Little Italy and they're called Red Hook and they're called Greenpoint and they're called all these other New York neighborhoods. I have one called the Longshoreman and the Big Chief for New Orleans. Nice. And I think it's um I, uh, I I think it's so much fun that mm-hmm. there are all these beautiful variations now, but they're mm-hmm. they're in the family in the Manhattan, but they have their own names and their own stories. That's incredible. And you you mentioned there as well your preference for the the kind of the perfect Manhattan, a mix of sweet and dry vermouth. Can can you tell us a little bit more about that, perhaps for someone who's never tried that, and and why you kind of yeah tend towards that as your preferred pour? I think I'm going back to like how I love um, the classics and mm-hmm. I've watched a lot of Nick and Nora movies and the uh, part of the allure of going into a really nice bar and having that relationship with the bartender is being ordered sometimes when you know what you want and you know they'll be able to do it is giving them this order. And mm-hmm. um, since the early days in the 1800s when this drink was created, perfect was like a way that you could have your drink. And mm-hmm. um you know, it wasn't made perfectly. It was a Manhattan perfect, which meant half sweet vermouth, half dry vermouth. Um, just like if you ordered like a whiskey cocktail improved, it mm-hmm. meant adding some absinthe or adding um, some maraschino liqueur. So I kind of love that it's still like this really old school way of taking uh, uh, your favorite classic cocktail and making a slight modification to it. And, um, you know, you could order a Martinez perfect. You can order, well, which, which would be a martini perfect as well, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> a martini perfect. And, um, uh, and I, and I really think that's, uh, that sometimes you could even play with, if you're going to have a Manhattan perfect with sweet and dry vermouth, then maybe you're going to do one dash of Angostura bitters and one dash of orange bitters, you know, to just kind of, you know, play with it. And maybe you have, I have like bergamot bitters right now I'm obsessed mm-hmm. with. So a little bergamot and with an Italian sweet vermouth is absolutely gorgeous. That's incredible. And that the wonderful seg there as well onto the, the, the kind of final ingredient here, um, bitter. So that, that would be your preference then. You're talking one dash of Angostura, one dash of orange, and then maybe something else that's kind of on the front of your mind for whatever reason at any moment. That's no fun thing about when you are grabbing a, a new bottle of rye or a new bottle of vermouth and you're tasting it combined for the first time that you can also have this huge range of bitters to choose from that can dramatically alter the flavor profile of the drink and where it's going to go. So you, even within this you know, strict rules, there is still so much variation that you could play with. And... You know, this being such a incredible classic, you've you've mentioned that you have these variations of it yourself. Um, how important is it, even if you don't have a Manhattan on your menu, to make sure that you do have a house spec for it that kind of everyone in your team is following um, in case someone doesn't arrive at the bar like yourself and have their preferred ratio and ingredients how important is it to have that house spec? I think it's extremely important. I recently had an experience at a bar where I just ordered a, you know, straight up kind of steakhouse style gin martini. And it was so good the first time around. So I ordered another one. And then another and the second one came and it was clearly not made by the same bartender. Oh, it was no. the slightest difference in like the number of olives on the pick, the the dilution. I could tell he shook it instead of stirred it. Like little no. things. 
and and I was like, I got really sad <laughs> mm-hmm. <That's laughs> because so I really liked the drink, how it came out the first time. I liked it so much. I ordered the the second one and I was like really sad that the, that I didn't get the same bartender who made it the same way. I know I'm talking about minutia differences and I still, of course, enjoyed the cocktail and, you know, finished it. Mm-hmm. But um, but as a as a bar manager and as a bartender, I think it's really important that the whole team be on the same page. And even if it's like, you know, like these are these are what I've decided are the house specs. It's really classic. Of course, we'll change it, you know, on any guest request. But um, but I try to do like, well, this is the most popular. This is the 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 most popular kind of standard way to serve it. And that is, you know, really classic two dashes of Angostura, one ounce of sweet vermouth, two ounces of rye whiskey stirred with a cherry. Mm -hmm. I mean, just classic really and that's the one that gets ordered again and again and i Mm -hmm. love it i love it when people order like the same drink again that means we did it right (laughs) that means we did it right the first time and we should just keep doing it that way so that's the one that in my experience keeps getting repeated oh yeah i want to oh your manhattans are so good your manhattans are so good like great that's the classic one you know, like I said, everyone has a different flavor profile and maybe some people like it different and that's fine. But then there's like, there's a standard, there's a standard. And I think it's important to uh, kind of find what that standard is for your location and mm-hmm. your bar and your clientele and, and, and to kind of honor that. And to your that's point just there, bring more people in. Yeah. And to your point with the martini example that you give, had you received that second martini first time around, Perhaps you wouldn't have ordered the second. I, yeah, I would not have. Yeah. Sounds like a, <laughs> you know, you, you lost me at Shaken. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. It's so, oh, it's so bad. And, you know, I know that they, you know, they didn't put any, like, any vermouth in it. And I was like, that's fine. I'm fine with, like, yep. a cold, uh, mm-hmm. you know, cold no bitters gin. in it. I'm like, I'm, I'm fine with a cold glass of gin with some olives in it, you know, when I'm sitting in a jazz club. That's fine. Mm-hmm. That does its purpose. But even that, like, I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm, as my mom said, there's no living with you now. Well, you're such a snob. <laughs> <laughs> and those are the other folks though, that will come in. If, if, if people know how they want it made, they will have, yeah. they will ask their bartenders if they've gone that deep themselves. So yeah. Importance yeah. of the house spec there. And that's okay. Oh, I've had people come in with a business card saying, this is how you need to make my daiquiri. And I'm like, that's fine. Yeah. You know, and it, and that's coming from a place where they um, because they had so many disappointed situations like yeah. I did. Mm-hmm. And and I'm and I feel I feel bad for that. Like we I joined this industry in in part of like if it wasn't the golden age, it was the next golden age or the diamond age or the platinum age of, uh, <laughs> of mixology. And we kind of really prided ourselves on bringing back this lost art that was mm-hmm. really just done, done already. And, um, and kind of setting this, resetting the standards for mm-hmm. if you go into a bar, you should have a good cocktail. And I think it's great now that people have that expectations. Um, however, you know, it's not, we're not everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, know your bar. Yes. Like you said, when you, 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 you made a good point, like we're talking all this talk about the Manhattan. If you go into a bar and you see those dusty bottles of Martini and Rossi on the back bar, do not order a Manhattan. No, just, just, no, just go for the whiskey. Whiskey, some nice yeah. whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of, you know, we, we've, we've mentioned shaking there. 
uh, I would love to hear your approach to stirring. And, uh, you know, of course, there are stirring. We, we know why we do that. But I was just wondering if you have any kind of idiosyncrasies or, or specific things that you dial into or you teach uh, younger bartenders that, you know, when, when you're stirring this drink in particular, but is there a preferred method that you have that might not be the same way that everyone else does? Well, it's still a huge issue, of course, people getting their drinks fast. Um, you know, it's how we make money. It's mm-hmm. how our businesses make money. Um, and uh, the guest expectations are that they get their drinks quickly as well. And you want to get that drink out there so they can order another one. Um, so I approach it, I think, most importantly for speed, which is when you get a Manhattan in and there are other drinks on there, you make that Manhattan first. Mm-hmm. in in the gl- mixing glass with the ice and then you make all the other drinks mm-hmm. and then you stir it and pour it it's it's resting on the ice it's not getting over diluted you know you're not agitating it it's not getting it's there's no way it's going to get over diluted while it's just sitting there in the ice but it is getting colder which is what's important that that drink take on that smooth velvety cold texture so that to me is really really important is that you get that drink out uh, built first in the glass, then make your other rounds. And then, so you have all the drinks kind of ready at the same time. Um, but that one, if, if you have time, you know, to, to let it sit, let it sit, man, get, and get, the, gr- get that other work done. I love that. And that's something as a home bartender, right? Complete novice here, someone who enjoys drinking, who enjoys making drinks, but hasn't done it professionally. That's something I always wonder about. So I'm so glad that you've cleared that up, whether I should be worried about dilution in that scenario. And it sounds like not. So maybe that's what I'm going to be doing on Friday Uh, nights now. You know, when you watch old movies, you know how they have like a martini pitcher or like a Manhattan pitcher? Mm -hmm. They make it like they make it by the pitcher for their guests. Those drinks are just sitting in the pitcher. They're not being, I mean, they have, sometimes they have a stir stick just to kind of stir it around, but they're Mm -hmm. just sitting on ice and then they just keep adding booze to it as the night goes on, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and so it doesn't get over diluted. And then they're pouring out little, little martini glasses, little Manhattan glasses. Those Mm -hmm. glasses are, are small. That's why, you know, people had three martini lunches because the glasses used to be really, really small. (laughs) You just keep it cold on a pitcher. And -hmm. of course, you know, I, I don't know why I don't see this more now. I mean, everyone's doing frozen martinis there's if you're batching for a party there's no reason why you can't do a frozen manhattan mm-hmm. you know batch it dilute it ahead of time stick it in the freezer and then when you're ready to pour just pour it out and in that scenario are you pre-diluting somewhat and and yeah. if you are what would be your kind of percentage or ratio there um the ratio is so when i um you're adding uh water per cocktail you're usually adding about an ounce of dilution so if I've got three ounces of the Manhattan, I'll add an ounce of water. Mm-hmm. It's that's why waters and, and ice is important because it's a it's a quarter of the drink. And what about bitters? Should I be worried that that over time is is going to kind of concentrate in flavor, or you're adding your bitters as well at that point? It, I mean, that- there are. I think people have. I've seen arguments on both sides that the bitters bloom if they le- are left in. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think they do. I personally, I think they taste just as good. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I'll go a little lighter because I like, like I said, I like my uh, heavy bitters, and you could always add bitters later. Mm-hmm. And that being, you know, 
if you're batching it, you're batching it for an evening. We're, we're talking hours here, right? You know, this is not yeah. something sat in barrel for months, right? You know, yeah. that's a whole different conversation that is, right there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And you touched upon glassware then, and I'd love to hear what, what your preference is now um, and temperature of glassware and, and, yeah, best practices when it comes to you've, you've stirred up your drink, you're going to serve it. Talk to me about the next step. Uh, I do, there is a category of drink called a Manhattan glass. They're a little hard to find, but they are that kind of um, Nick and Nora Mm -hmm. style cocktail. Maybe not curved. They usually have kind of straight edge. Mm -hmm. Um, You could still find them a lot in thrift stores. Uh, and, And I do keep them in the freezer. Yeah. I really like having a chilled glass. You pour, you do all that work to like chill this cocktail, pour it into a chilled glass. And then as the glass and the drink kind of move to room temperature, it mm-hmm. releases even more aromatics and styles of the drink. That's why the Sazerac is so good, right? Because mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's it got is. so many, excuse me, and that's why the Sazerac is so good. It has so many aromatic um, elements that just start to release as the um, uh, glass moves to room temperature. That makes it really special. Mm-hmm. And final garnish? Uh, I do, you know, like a classic uh, cherry, mm-hmm. a classic brandy cherry. Um, I, I, like I said, if I'm having it with dry, uh, a little whisper of a twist of, uh, of, uh, uh, lemon is good. Uh, but I don't leave the lemon peel in the glass cause, um, as soon as you leave lemon peel in the glass, it starts to impart uh, bitterness. Yeah. I've seen it happen like within a minute, it can really change how the drink tastes with more bitterness. So just an expression over the top there. And then yep. the cherries. Oh. Let's make sure they've seen a tree, right? Let's make sure they were they were <laughs> they were once living. They existed. <laughs> yeah, I know. Those uh I, I that's kind of uh, standard practice now. I'm glad we've we've passed the days with those uh, electric cherries. Although I gotta tell you, when my one of the reasons why I started in this industry is I was um uh, started to be able to go to some fine dining restaurants in, in New York City and was very excited uh, to, you know, spend hundreds of dollars on an amazing meal. But I'd always start with a Manhattan, just like my grandfather would when we went out to eat, the rare times we went out to eat. And I'd be so disappointed when it would show up like shaken in a V-shaped martini, martini glass mm. with a like bright red cherry. And I'm like, wait a minute, this this is not right. (laughs) So that was like my gateway really into the industry was like, I saw that fine dining was not keeping pace with the Mm -hmm. cocktail bars that I was going to, as far as innovation and freshness and ingredients and technique. And I was like, you could have all this technique in the kitchen. And you know, it's still to this day, like the chefs are, are these, you know, lauded for their technique and their celebrity and bartenders are still like (laughs) working 15 hour shifts. Yeah. (laughs) What up? (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy. Um, so any, any final thoughts on, on the drink, anything about the Manhattan that we haven't, that we haven't covered yet or anything else that you would like to kind of add to this conversation? I, I, I'd say I have an argument that the Manhattan is, is, one of the greatest American cocktails. And I think it often um, gets pushed aside as a grandpa drink and, or as, you know, oh yeah, that classic or, uh, you know, but I like this variation better. Like I, I think what it represents the time and place where it was created 
and what it represents to the history of this country is one of those linchpins that are so important that it should be really elevated to, you know, our, you know, our national cocktail. I mean, I'm very, that's wow. very East Coast centric. I don't know. I'd like to have a debate actually with somebody from New Orleans, um, somebody from San Francisco to talk about Pisco Punch and um, and someone from the Midwest to talk about the Wisconsin old fashioned. Mm-hmm. And we, we can have a throwdown between these four great American cocktails and see where we land. <laughs> wow. That's, I mean, that's, you know, cause obviously, you know, New Orleans itself has the Sazerac, but if we're talking national here, I mean, that's, that's lofty, that's lofty praise, but I, I definitely think that you're, you're onto something and saying that this drink does stake many claims for being worthy of that status. This cocktail was the first cocktail that went global. This was a global viral phenomenon. There was people from all over the world who came to the United States to drink a Manhattan. Then that's how well known it was. Like mm-hmm. that's that's incredible that's, yeah. when you think about that in the 1800s that you had princes from Europe and from Asia coming to say, "Give me a Manhattan." You know, what is this America about? I could taste it in a glass. Manhattan. Oh my God, I'm sold. I'm sold. That's it. That's it. That's that's it. Sorted. America's national drink, the Manhattan. <laughs> the Manhattan. <laughs> you've you, you've sold me on that 100. Um, <laughs> percent So Abigail, thank you so much for for sharing your decades of experience with with the Manhattan. That's been absolutely incredible. Um, loved hearing everything you've had to say. Before we finish. We'd definitely like to to get to know yourself a little bit better and get to know your your, your philosophies to bartending beyond uh, this specific cocktail. And so we have some final questions to to finish the show with. How's that sound? All right, that sounds great. Awesome. First one for you. What's the first bottle? Whether that you want to talk about a brand or a general style of spirits in general um, that makes it onto any one of your bar programs. Well. I mean, after everything I've talked about with the Sazerac and the Manhattan, I'm I'm looking for uh, uh, my well rye whiskey for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good, good. I like to I, I like that you keep it on brand. There, people don't always do that. By the way, sometimes we might be talking about a cocktail, and then suddenly they're like, "Yeah, you know, we've just been talking about this for the past forty five minutes." But actually, so glad to hear that you keep that on brand. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the most uh, which ingredient or tool? do you believe is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? You know, we've discussed this at my, my bar in New Orleans, Comparela Pen. Mm-hmm. Um, in depth, we almost all got matching tattoos. Um, so <laughs> bartenders always get tattoos of, of bar tools uh, on their, uh, on their bodies. And we mm-hmm. thought if you were truly the, to the bar tool you use most often in a uh, uh, fast, high volume cocktail bar right now, uh, it would be blue tape and Sharpie. Mm-hmm. hmm <laughs> 100%. I would, I, I would so, I so need a blue tape and Sharpie tattoo because uh, uh, <laughs> keeping track of all your batches and labeling all your syrups are very, very important. <laughs> you need that on hand. Yeah, like, you know, I've seen, I've, I've seen enough chef tattoos, you know, the, the knife. Do you know what I mean? That's been I done. I know, the knife. <laughs> come on. Come on, you know, blue tape and Sharpie. That's passe that by this point. Too. Come on, guys. And that's and how you yeah. know you're a pro too, because the pros will know this is the thing that you need on hand at all times. <laughs> I love it. At all times. <laughs> at all times. <laughs> well, I want to see that, t- that tattoo um, 
when the, when the design is ready. That sounds awesome. Oh yeah, we have color coded tape too and and ink so we don't mix up our stuff with the kitchen. The kitchen <sighs> has their own, we have our own. <laughs> now you're talking. Absolutely. Yeah, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We need the that. battle continues between <laughs> back of house and front of house. And then they can't borrow yours. You know, the chef is not doing his ordering. He's trying to say, so you know, mad. guys, what so we'll do, mad. we'll take their tape. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll boost our cost. You know, our percentages are looking better this month. That's how I know when I see, when I see a, a, a chef with a, with a blue Sharpie in his jacket, I'm like, you stole that from the bar. <laughs> Busted buddy. There you go. Third question for you. What's the most important piece of advice you've received during your time in the industry? Oh, oh, that's hard because I've I've gotten so much wonderful advice from so many people. I guess it's um, oh my gosh. I guess it's to always always remember um, that 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 you your uniqueness that your personality and your spirit is, is, is the best thing that you bring to the bar every day. So make sure that that's polished and, and feeling good and uh, make sure you're feeling good because it's this, this industry is your whole self. So make sure you take care of your whole self. I love it. Express yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing that song going off in my head now. <laughs> If you could only visit one last bar in your life, which one would that be? Oh, my last bar. Like, it's only, I, well, you know, it's it's just going to be wherever Chris Hanna is bartending. Mm-hmm. I, it's not the bar, it's the bartender. <laughs> I just want to sit uh, on the other side of the bar from Chris Hanna and have him make me a drink and have him talk to me. Definitely go for one of his Sazeracs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Final question. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Oh, well, it would uh, it would definitely be a Manhattan. It'd have to be a Manhattan. I'd, I'd make it my way perfect. Uh, I'd make it with Willet Rye. And... Um, and yeah, and I definitely cheers to my grandpa Vincent and mm-hmm. thank him for um, all the love and guidance and and love for the classics that he gave me. I love it as well when things come full circle, and <laughs> we've absolutely come full circle here, at Abigail. So thank you so much. Um, oh, you're it's been welcome. So wonderful. Can I uh, take a moment to uh, plug Bartender Circle? Absolutely. Okay. So I have been working with this group here in Seattle called Bartender Circle, and it is actually a, um, a global uh, outreach industry education group for bartenders. And uh, it's free to sign up, bartendercircle.com. And I really am at the point where I want to unite us. This is such a wonderful time mm-hmm. for us who have been stuck virtu- in this virtual world to kind of really cement these virtual connections globally and, um, and share ideas and positivity. It's a real, it's a real positive place. It's, it's a place for us to, to share experiences and, um, and have a good laugh. And, uh, and then once a year we get together at Seattle cocktail week with the bartender circle summit. So, um, 
I really want to reach out to everyone who's listening and have them join Bartender Circle with me and join our Discord so we could continue to have really fun conversations. Mm-hmm. And um, and thank you so much for having me. No, my pleasure. And 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 you know, like you say there, you know, I think the most important word there is community and you know being together and and sharing ideas like you talk about. You know, I think one of the most important things over the past 20, 30 years, you know, a rising tide brings up old, old ships, as they say, right? And, and being a community and sharing knowledge and ideas and thoughts, I mean, what, what could be better? So yeah, that sounds incredible. Absolutely. Everyone, please go and we check out We have people who are being, I mean, the pandemic has made it clear that there are whole groups of people being left behind and mm-hmm. we need to, we need to grab them. We need to grab them and bring them up. And we've been been so privileged and so blessed that this industry is taking off and i really i want to leave no one behind mm-hmm. incredible Not this thank time. you so much abigail and thank <laughs> you for the awesome work that you're doing with that and thank you for sitting down with us today it's been wonderful thank you so much for having me tim pleasure's all mine okay that was a lot of info but here's the good news Every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, VinePair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Grinberg, art director at VinePair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. The right bourbon can elevate your next cocktail into an experience worth savoring. So look for a brand that doesn't overlook the details and sets the standard for bourbon. That's not creep. It's truly the real deal. An authentic, classic line of American whiskies with proofs ranging from 100 to 120. Knob Creek is aged longer to produce a full flavor experience as rich and deep as its history. With every drop, you notice the attention to detail Knob Creek puts into its bourbon. So strive for a little more substance, because when you choose to go deeper, you'll find so much more to appreciate.